0: Welcome to the Dad Strength Podcast, helping you take care of yourself so that you can be present for your people. The Dad Strength Podcast is presented to you by the Unlearning Network. My name is Jeff Gervitz. You can call me friend, buddy. Call me buddy, pal. Call me, (laughs) call me whatever you like, because like you, I am here trying to figure out this whole dad thing at the same time. This is our first official episode, and in the immortal words of the Jeffersons, it took a whole lot of trying just to get up that hill, and that's why I wanted to come out of the gate with some power and some precision. To do that, I brought on a good friend of mine someone who has been an important part of my circle of friends, what I call my relational healthcare network, something not incidentally, I want this podcast and our community to be for you. Today, we have Dr. Krista Scott-Dixon. Krista is the head of curriculum development at Precision Nutrition. Her work over there has been instrumental in making them leaders in nutrition coaching and education. Krista is a prolific writer. She has written a number of books, including Why Me Want Eat?, So uh, you can tell just from the title, she is not burdened by taking herself too seriously. And that's a good thing because she is wicked smart and not just in a booksy way, but with a sense of humanity and wisdom that is really just embedded into the DNA of her thought process. She also swears like a longshoreman, just FYI. Krista is one of the people that helps me feel centered and I just appreciate the hell out of her. Our discussion also happens to tackle two of the big themes that we'll be exploring on the podcast. Those are 360-degree health, what Krista calls deep health, and doing work that matters in a way that matters. So on this episode, we are going to dig into relational health and vocational health. Before we begin, I'd like to tell you about our sponsor for the episode, Othership. Othership is a guided breathwork app. Sessions can wake you up calm you down and otherwise get you into the state of mind you need. I can tell you that having more of an ADHD brain for me means that it is hugely beneficial to be able to regulate my emotional state before I begin to do anything important. I ask, how do I want to feel before I really contemplate how I want to think or do? And these are deeply related Having tools like Othership in my toolkit makes a tremendous difference. You can try the app for free by visiting othership.us. Now, for my interview with Chris Scott Dixon, let's get into it.
1: The fact that we are even raising the question of social health, I think, reflects a dominant way of thinking uh, in Anglo North America, which is that, especially especially in the U.S., um, that you are an individual. And everything that organizes your life somehow stems from individual factors, right? Willpower, motivation, wanting something, uh, not making excuses for yourself, taking responsibility for yourself. But, you know, when you conceptualize everything about health and well-being as solely the property of the individual, you completely misunderstand Like there's no like one organism just out there in the world by itself as the last remaining, we call that extinction. (laughs) So, you know, organisms generally live in some kind of collective format in symbiosis with other organisms in an ecosystem. And so our our biological function depends on connections, relationships, uh, interdependencies, and at certain points in our life dependencies. We are dependent as infants. We are dependent, you know, a lot of us, uh, in older age or when we get injured or whenever life happens. And so we are, uh, as, and I hate to use this term, but we're hardwired to require social interaction and safe, secure, supportive relationships in order to thrive. So you can think of it at the most like practical level, right? Public health. So Thank God someone is at the wheel of this car, making sure that we have clean drinking water, sanitation, public health measures that prevent toxic chemicals from leaching into our immediate environment, and so on. And then at the more uh, conceptual level, it's really crucial to have these kinds of connections and supports in our life uh, because without them we we don't thrive.
0: One of the things that took me well into my adulthood to figure out is that you know we're born into a world, and I think as kids, we are just so adaptive that we assume, hey, this is just the default. Uh, if something doesn't feel right, it's because I'm off about it. Uh, the world is right. But of course, that's not the case. And it takes us a long time, or at least it took me a long time to really come to terms with that. Okay, so if we are not immediately thrust into a uh, the kind of environment that will nurture the best in us, the question becomes, how do we create that and so I asked Krista about how to deconstruct this from a social health perspective.
1: I think one of the biggest ones, and and this this is a long term project, but it can be built out of small little actions, is improving our social and emotional intelligence and competence. So, and and that's like a whole roster of skills, right? Because we I think tend to think of people like oh, they're an extrovert or they're a people person. They're just really good with people. And of course, I mean, if you're a parent of multiple kids, you know that some of your kids are more social than others. Like there's always that little kid who walks down the street at age two, like fearlessly saying hi to everyone. That was not me. (laughs) I was the kid hiding under the blanket, avoiding human contact. Right. So yes, of course, some people are naturally more gregarious than others. They gravitate more towards social uh, interactions, but you know, fundamentally social and emotional intelligence and competence is a set of skills and it's a set of daily actions. And it can be as, as small as, you know, practicing making appropriate eye contact with someone or practicing demonstrating behaviors that affirm other people like, Hey man, looking good today, or Hey, nice squat or, you know, whatever. I appreciate you like just very, very small things. I think that would it, it would just yield such tremendous benefits to to be able to I mean and this is the kind of thing we teach for example people on the autism spectrum like so this is a known set of skills and competencies right this is not like a mystery like we teach people here's how you read facial expressions here's how you read body language when someone says this they mean that right so becoming educated in social competency is a known skill set that anyone can gain. So that's piece number one. I think piece number two is You know, fundamentally recognizing that this is important. And it's similar to what we've done with something like sleep, right? Uh, You know, it used to be people were always like really proud of not getting enough sleep, right? Oh, I'm so busy. I'm so productive. I'm not getting enough sleep. I'm a real hustler. And now we know, and I think this is starting to come into the public consciousness, that you actually need sleep for high performance. It's not negotiable. So I think the second piece is really just educating folks around the value of social connection. Um, and and not in a way of like making you paranoid because you're not getting it, right? Like if you're listening to this and you live alone, you're like, oh my God, am I going to die, right? Like we don't want to do it that way.
0: So you're going to be okay, this I know, but uh, I do want to point out that the purpose of the Dad Strength podcast is to be part of your relational healthcare network. So this represents a broader set of resources designed to help you really be at your best. Because just like we say at the beginning, you need to be at your best so that you can take care of the people in your life. And it's not necessarily an easy thing. And I think sometimes uh, self-care feels like kind of a luxury, but this is ultimately what you need uh, for a life well lived for both you and your family. So let's kick it back to Krista here and let her pick up the thread.
1: But I think... It's really important to educate people um, for example healthy aging. so my grandmother is 95 uh, she lives alone but she has a constant stream of people calling, visiting, interacting, swinging by to drop off some muffins like there's just a, a, a continually ongoing requirement of social interaction in her life and I've often wondered like what makes her still so sharp uh, and and checked in at 95 and I have to believe that a huge part of it, is that nourishing power of ongoing, meaningful, supportive, affirming social interaction. So I guess the third piece is to really say, okay, first begin with like a social audit, right? What relationships right now in my life feel relatively stronger, more secure, more supportive, more accepting, more affirming, more understanding. Um, And it's not that someone's walking around kissing your ass all the time, but like, who are the people that are like my safe people? right? Who are on my team? Who are the people that I could call? I always joke that like, there's certain kinds of friends that if they showed up on your doorstep at three in the morning with like a golden idol and said, hide this, don't ask questions. You'd be like, okay. (laughs) And you're that kind of friend for me, Jeff Gervitz, just, just FYI, (laughs) you know, but like who are your people that in whatever way understand you and get you? Um, and, and for a lot of people in some ways to do that, they have to go out and find those people. Uh, because just because there are other people in the world that share your DNA, in other words, your family does not mean that they will offer you those safe, secure, supportive relationships. And I think, um, you know, In certain ways, it's been a little bit detrimental to insist on the value of family for some people, for whom family is not a safe place, for whom family cannot be trusted. It's the site of a ton of dysfunction and insecure relationships. So, you know, for some people, social health is going to require getting out and finding people who are on your team. And that does take some work, but I think simply acknowledging that. Uh, can can be part of the process. But that's, that's why, you know, places like bank fitness or any kind of group coaching tend to be successful because people start to form teams and tribes and groups and feel like, yeah, you know what? I only see these people once a week for an hour for a boxing class or whatever, but I see them and, and we're kind of suffering and struggling together and that, that bonds us. And, and even that might actually be enough. So you don't always need, you know, the hide, the golden idol friends, You just need people who pass a certain threshold of like acceptance, security, safety, and support for you.
0: I just want to jump in really quickly to say that if this sounds like it is important, but you're not really sure where to start, my advice would be to organize things around health behaviors. So that could be exercise. uh, That could be a feeling of calm and relaxation. It could be a hobby that requires all of your available RAM all of this is is really important, and if you find a, a practice and activity that to you feels unambiguously positive, I think you're going to find that the the people that you meet there they may not all be BFFs but they will contribute to uh, your your network of support in a really meaningful way
1: what we're talking about is not I'm putting this in finger quotes just feelings so you know, the requirement to have strong and supportive social relationships is not just something that me, Krista needs, because Krista is needy, right? As mammals, there is a specific structure or set of structures and processes in our brain, specifically devoted to social interactions a whole range of ways. So, you know, one circuit is judging your proximity to me. How close is Jeff to me? Is Jeff safe? Where is Jeff looking? Where is his eyes going? Um, you know, what is his facial expression? Is he safe? Is he a threat? You know, so, so, and, and, and these brain circuits are intimately connected to threat and stress or security and safety. So, like undergirding anything that happens to us in our life there's a teacher who tells us we're a fuck up or a parent who's disappointed in us or a job we don't get or something that we fail like all of these things activate these circuits in our brain and you know some research suggests that when these are activated in ways that make us feel like shit that hurts worse than experiencing some kind of um broad based disaster so if like a tornado takes out my house well, that absolutely sucks. It's extremely distressing and traumatic, but it's not personal. And that's the difference, right?
0: This reminds me of something that I'm pretty sure I learned from Krista. And this is this idea of circles of control. We're at our center. These are the things that you have absolute control over. And then kind of one order out, we have the things that we have influence over. Beyond that, it's, it's beyond our control. We can't do anything about often This is called uh, circles of concern. Often we worry about it. We try to keep the wings on the plane, but this is out of our control. And it is incredibly liberating to be able to let that stuff go.
1: This is something I've really come to understand because early in my life, my personal uh, belief system and framing of the story here was, oh, um, if things aren't working out for me, there must be some kind of personal deficiency that I have. Um, instead of now in hindsight, I look back and I'm like, you know, a lot of adults failed me <laughs> and it was the seventies. Right. So again, like everyone was smoking and driving without seatbelts. And like, I remember my doctor smoking. So like, it was, it was a certain kind of time where we just didn't know about human development, but in terms of my own career development. So, I mean, I, I've had lots and lots of lives and, and careers and pathways. And, you know, when I first started university, I thought I wanted to be an artist and I went to art school and then I thought I wanted to be a teacher and, 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 <laughs> that kind of worked out, kind of didn't, uh, you know, I got into social justice stuff, um, and, and made my way through academia with that as my focus, uh, particularly on, on gender. Um, and, you know, spent five, after I did my PhD, spent five years teaching and doing research in, in the university and then a short stint in like, you know, public health research. And I was like, I just, I, this, this just doesn't work. Um, you know, and, and I mean, talking about social health, I mean, like academia, if you're an academic listening to this, like you're probably nodding your head if I say that academia is one of the most socially dysfunctional places. just I quit my job one day with no plan and, and I just was like, well, um, I guess I can get money as a personal trainer, which is what I was doing through grad school. And, and here we are today, <laughs> fast forward through, you know, coaching, teaching, training, curriculum, writing, and, and here we are today. You know, and it's it's kind of funny and ironic because so much of my, my PhD, I was surrounded by people who were really questioning the status quo, particularly economically, socially and politically, like, you know, questioning uh, social inequality, questioning structures and systems that like propped it up, questioning, you know, colonialism, resource extraction, like all of the systemic and structural things that... Um, uh, produce social inequality and maintain it. Right. And like really maintain it, like really work to maintain it. And, but early on, you know, when you're in the cult, it's hard to see out. Right. And, and, and academia functions like a bit of a cult. There's like a long-term indoctrination and there's a lot of gaslighting. And so you arrive like into an academic career Fairly heavily having drunk the Kool-Aid, right? Like it's really hard to see out because at that point, your colleagues are other academics, you often date other academics, your friends are academics, you hang out at, the, you know, at parties, you know all the same people, right? So like you are very much in that world without necessarily a lot of perspective outside of it. So it's very easy to get sucked into the system. And, and so the cult of productivity is very strong in academia. I think in part because you are not making tangible things, right? You are, you are doing knowledge work, quote unquote, whatever that is. And so that is something that can really, um, when, when something is nebulous and hazy, it can produce a lot of anxiety because it's like, there's no clear marker for when you've done enough in knowledge work, right? Like if you're a carpenter or a cabinet maker and you build a cabinet and you can look at your cabinet and go, that's cool. I'm done now. Like past a certain point, you can't cabinet anymore on one cabinet, right? So there's very clear markers for like what a beginning, middle and end in is in your work. And you have a thing that you've made at the end of it, whereas knowledge work is much different. And so I think, you know, um, you begin to get in this very dangerous game where productivity, whatever that means to you, can be ratcheted up infinitely.
0: Not incidentally, this has been something that I have had to deal with in a really sort of in the bones way. I opened up my business, Bank Personal Training in 2008, which feels like about a century ago. And, you know, I knew the path I wanted to take was different. But, you know, the problem with that is there's nothing laid out in front of you. There is no clear direction forward. So I'd be there at the starting line with my engine running and a ton of drive to do great work. But there was no course. And I didn't know what direction to go. And that creates a lot of tension, uh, it creates a lot of stress. And, you know, I would, my ideas, uh, all of which I tried to attend to would pile up at a easily at a three to one ratio. So like for everything I would do, I would have three more things that would get added to my to-do list. And these things would eventually balloon up so much. I would just get rid of them and start afresh because it was so much, um, less overwhelming than just trying to look at all these these ideas and things I was I was trying to accomplish and you know at the time I didn't realize that this was an issue of discernment of me being more selective of me saying no I just thought it was the problem was me I just wasn't working hard enough and that's how these days would balloon into you know I would often work 12 hour days going oh my god, I have even more stuff on my to-do list to do at the end of the day than when things started so uh, you you know pushing a boulder uphill like Sisyphus would have been a nice break. it felt like you know same feeling of accomplishment, but at least I would have had real focus on on what to do and where to put the work you know and at this point now I would say the same thing to anyone that I would say to myself and that is you just have to be so crystal clear about what is important to you, what your values are, um, because that clarity becomes the, the filter that everything else passes through. And, and I do believe this, I believe that the closer the work you do, uh, becomes to your true values, the more energy you have. And, and maybe more importantly, the better you get at saying no to things that are outside of, of that. And that will ultimately just suck your energy. There's always
1: someone who seems to be doing and achieving more than you. You can always find that person, whether that's true or not, whether they're having a complete breakdown in their personal life or not. um, There's always like the goalposts are always moving. And so if it's like, oh, okay, uh, you know, get through grad school. Okay, cool. Got my PhD. Cool. Okay, get a job. Cool. Uh, Get on the tenure track. Cool. You know, get this course. Cool. Like there's always some kind of moving goalpost. And it it was always kind of funny to me that people who even had tenure were completely stressed out all the time because they were just so accustomed to living this kind of lifestyle. So that was in my twenties and in my thirties. And, but now like in my late forties, and I think the pandemic has really accelerated this where we've all just witnessed like the failure of late capitalism to um, provide sustenance <laughs> for like a huge group of people. And we've all like witnessed billionaires jetting themselves into space and going like, could we have spent that money better somehow? <laughs> like, like, I think, you know, the, the average person, I think is really starting to ask themselves some pretty critical questions. Um, and, and, and along with that comes productivity. You know, many people, now I'm very lucky. I work for a great organization, but many people, are now being mandated back to work right and so there's now such a huge disjuncture for people between the expectations the mantras the 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 mottos of corporate capitalism and life as we know it like real life as we know it and have directly experienced it i think a lot of people are waking up and going what the fuck like what am i what am i doing why am i turning the wheel for this As I witness, you know, in a lot of corporations, like the CEO's compensation is so insanely above what the lowest wage workers make. You know, people are looking at this and going like, how does this make sense? And so I think a lot of people are really beginning to question the mantras of productivity. And even if they're not necessarily strongly questioning them, are finding themselves deeply unable to meet those ideals. Because I don't know if anyone listening has ever tried to do homeschooling and work at the same time. Even if you have a dog at home, for God's sake, like it is incredibly difficult to achieve maximum productivity in the midst of a global pandemic with family relations, economic security, so fundamentally disrupted. So um, I, uh, that, that does maybe sound a little bit ranty, but I, I think that just a lot of people are waking up and going, what the fuck am I even doing here? And, and it's almost like when you shake yourself awake and you're just like, right? <laughs> oh my God, what was I doing for the last, uh, two decades?
0: That, uh, that, that waking terror when you, you dreamt that you peed. That's right. you, did I, is that, did I? Uh, okay. <laughs>
1: Oh, so relatable, Jeff. As we,
0: as we would say in my house, another dry night.
1: Okay. <laughs> Every dry night is a good night. It's a good, it's a victory, mm-hmm. right? Small wins, that's what we're looking for. <laughs> no, we're
0: not greedy. We're not greedy. <laughs> you know, this conversation isn't exactly a fluke. Krista and I speak about work of meaning all the time. And to me, more and more, this has come to mean two things. And they're really on opposite ends of the continuum. One is the immediate term, right now. What is the experience of working like? Are you challenged enough? Do you have enough support? Is the environment, whether that's physical or social, are these things that really work for you? And I mean, none of us are going to have a perfect, however, uh, we just want to be moving in that direction. And then the very long-term stuff is, well, what is meaningful to me? What would I love to be the accumulation of years of my labors? Maybe it's a profound piece of art, or maybe it's something of great social impact. Maybe it is a lot of uh, very personal interactions. Maybe it's you leading huge groups. Who can say? The idea here is to, I think, figure this out. And this is not like an hour-long exercise. I think it's just lifelong. It's just something we think about on an ongoing basis. Definitely something I've tried to do. So here's where I asked Krista about doing work of meaning
1: one of the things i've been thinking about a lot recently is the importance of decolonizing our minds about what work is and does and recognize and this is this is actually kind of fun because this is where i get to bring in my my academic work ironically as you know doing some work in like labor history and that sort of thing you know the way that we think about work now is really has not been very much updated since the 1800s Um, and you know, and I I saw a great bumper sticker a while back that was like, it said labor unions, the people who brought you the weekend. And so it's important that people understand that like a hundred years ago, maybe 150 years ago, like there was really no concept of worker protection. There was no concept of a work day or getting breaks or getting a lunch or a weekend or anything like that. You know, workers were very disposable bodies Um, You know, little kids would be working in like factories, just running in and out of machines. Like, I think it's hard for someone in 2021 to really understand how terrible work was back in the day and the ways that it was organized. We still have retained many of the practices that existed 100 or 150 years ago. So one of the examples is a wage for hours. So a lot of us think about our work as like, oh, how many hours did I... put in. But there are certain kinds of jobs where that's a meaningless construct. It's a meaningless thing. Like we've all had moments where some great teacher sat down with us for, I don't know, 20 minutes and like rocked our world. They gave us some really crucial insights some piece of feedback, just something amazing that had a very profound impact on us. But that was not reflected in any number of hours that they spent with us. right? And so I think we can all think of like moments in our life when there was an incredible amount of leverage or value or insight or something shifted for us that had no reflection to time right that it was not the value of this was not the time it was whatever the significance of of the assistance was right so you know again as we move into a more knowledge work paradigm hours for money for most jobs doesn't make sense anymore, yet we continue to think about it that way, right? So the real question we should be asking ourselves, so, so, so I mean, it's like, so a lot of productivity is like, how can I do more hours? Or how can I take the existing hours and stuff more stuff into it, stuff more tasks into it, right? So we, it's like, um, you know, if you ask someone in, in continental Europe, what is, what is food value, right? They'd be like, oh, it'd be like quality of ingredients, right? An excellent, valuable meal is quality of ingredients, loving preparation, whatever. If you ask someone in the US, what is good value for food money? They'd be like, oh, a lot of food, right? They're looking for volume. And I think that we've, we've kind of adopted that, right? It's like, oh, good work means a lot of work, whether that's I get a lot of shit done or I put in a lot of hours or both. So I think the question we should be really asking ourselves is, what value am I bringing here? Um, And we can conceptualize value, not in monetary terms, but but in all kinds of ways, right? So as a parent, Jeff, like, you know, value, maybe I'm ensuring that this tiny human that I'm responsible for is growing and evolving in a really healthy, productive, awesome way that's gonna turn them into a terrific adult human, right? that's what value means in parenting in lots of ways. Am I going to engage in some new scientific discovery? Am I going to help humanity? Am I going to help a person? Am I going to add insight? You know, like there's so many ways that are non-monetary to conceptualize value. So I think this is the question we should be asking ourselves: Did I create value? And not just for me, But did I help serve and care for other people? Did I advance the cause of humanity today? Uh, Did I um, put value into the universe rather than extracting value? These are way, way different questions than just, did I do a lot of stuff? Because I think, was it Peter Drucker said something like, nothing is so tragic as doing with great energy a bunch of stuff that shouldn't be done at all? Like, I'm killing the quote here, but it was along those lines. Like, there's no, value in just tasking like a hamster in a wheel we have to really say what does value mean to me and how can I achieve that in the work that I do
0: my father used to say the only thing worse than bad food is lots of it
1: (laughs) exactly (laughs) exactly yeah that's what we're talking about here and I think we've got ourselves into this headspace where it's like I I mean I haven't down to the U.S. south in a while, but they used to have those cafeteria restaurants, right? I don't know if they're still around, but it was like all you can eat for five bucks. But what you're going to eat is like instant mashed potatoes and macaroni and cheese. Like it's just awful, but you can get a lot for five bucks, right? So I I, I don't think that that's the hill we want to die on in terms of our work.
0: So we're getting to some really juicy stuff here. Once you have figured that out or really are on the track to figuring out what is really important for you, then the next big challenge is asking the question of, "How can I make this happen?" And I think we have to be really pragmatic about this. So idealism can drive that long view, but on the ground, what can we take action on right now? How can we create change right now? Because change is always a challenge. And you know, certainly that's the case with significant change, but there's a reason there's a bigger driver for it. Um, but we might be wondering, man, is that something I'm capable of?" And I wanted to tackle this. This idea of, um, you know, not being as able to change after a certain age, after you turn 30 or after you turn 40, right? Maybe you've got a bunch of anecdotes around this or you've heard it from a lot of people, but what's the truth behind this?
1: I think we have this idea that like, oh, um, once you pass a certain age, you can never learn, grow or evolve, which I find patently ridiculous. And like one of my lines for this is that even earthworms can learn a maze. So if a damn earthworm can learn a maze, then you as an adult functioning human, (laughs) you know, provided that you have sufficient cognitive capacity can learn something new. And so I, I think that's one of the more insidious myths of our culture that like, Oh, older people can't do X, Y, and Z. What a crock of crap. They, you know, they, they learn what they need to learn. We all learn what we need to learn. One of the um famous um uh cases that i think about is um and i forgot the guy's name but it was um a guy who was convicted wrongly of a, of murder and this was like a, a guy who had never graduated high school i think he was partially illiterate and and he realized that dna evidence could potentially exonerate him and he was like, well, God damn it, I guess I better learn my genetics. And he <laughs> buckled down and got to work and learned everything he could about genetics and DNA testing and eventually was able to learn enough and, and you know, to present the evidence to exonerate himself. So like, that's what we call motivation, right? And so I think at any age, you can learn, grow and evolve in ways that are salient and interesting and relevant to you. Now we all know those people who were like, oh, I can't learn how to use the microwave, which I found (laughs) like my, you know, my 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 dad and his wife were like that. They were like, oh, we can't learn how to use the television. I'm like, come on, man. Like this shit's been around since the 50s. This is just learned helplessness on your part, right? and I do think there's a lot of that. But but when you are immersed in a paradigm that's like oh no one over a certain age can possibly engage in any learning. Well, I mean, like this, it's just nonsensical. So I, I am firmly convinced that with the the right relevance and support, people can learn, grow and evolve in any way. Are you going to get the same language learning at 60 that you could get at four? Of course not. Right. There are, there are critical periods of neuroplasticity. We know this, but you can get pretty darn good. I mean, this is why I, I the language one is one that bugs me a little bit because, you know, Actors have dialect coaches, right? And if you think about how little kids learn language, like how does that work? You are immersed in an environment where everyone around you is helping you learn that language, right? So there's a bird, and someone's like, "That's a bird. Can you see the bird? There's a bird. I'm pointing at a bird. We're gonna spell bird. We're gonna write bird. I'm gonna say bird to you five thousand more times. Well, of course you're gonna learn the word bird, right? So, like, I think we we so often ignore context. And so this comes back around to those lifestyle changes. Like, what are you doing at different phases in your life? Well, what you're doing at 20 is very likely not what you're doing at 60. And that is where we see a lot of those changes happen. And I think it goes back to education, educating people around that to say, listen, um, a lot of this comes from your choices and behaviors. And not that you can just turn your life on a dime, but there are avenues for you to change in very substantial ways if you want. And to kind of, again, disrupt that individualist model with social support and coaching and assistance, because that's the part I think where a lot of people fall down. It's like strength training. You know, we know that strength training gets results in people who are like of any age, right? There's that 100-year-old powerlifter that just competed. Um, so stimulus response is something that holds with human brains at any
0: age. We don't think about all that Um, and you know, and for some reason, you know, you're like, oh, I've been doing these 45 minute classes once a week and I just don't seem to be able to remember (laughs) Italian. (laughs) You might need a lot more.
1: Yeah. Yeah, Yeah. absolutely. And there's this um psychological effect called the end of history illusion. And so if you if you say to people, okay, um, how much do you think that you've changed in the last 10 years? They'll say, Oh, quite a lot. You know, I could see definite changes between 30 and 40 or whatever okay, how much do you think you will change in the next 10 years? Oh, not at all. This is it. I got my ass groove in the couch of life and we're just going to, you know, sit on cruise control and we're just going to go until I die. Right. So people's perceptions about their own ability to change as well as their perceptions around whether they actually did change, um, I, I think are a little bit skewed. And so we know that midlife is an incredibly volatile time jobs, uh, family, all of a sudden your parents get old, crazy stuff starts happening. Your kids grow up, there's different life stages they go through. Like so many things happen at every stage of life. So there's no point in which we are not asked to change.
0: Say what you will about humans. We are adaptable. It's our whole thing. We are not the strongest animals. I'm not even sure we're the smartest, but we have that adaptability on our sides. And so one of the questions that I want to ask and I want to encourage you to ask is if you are having trouble with the kind of change you want to create, are you giving yourself a fair shake? Are you creating the kind of support environment, the nutrient-rich environment that you need, whether that is exposure to learning, that is more social support, whatever it is to get the job done? And of course, this all comes down to foundational health practices. Are you sleeping enough? Are you getting the nutrients that you need? Are you exercising? I want to bring up something that Krista created uh, that is a concept she refers to as deep health. And you can check this out through her work at Precision Nutrition. Uh, But in this sort of matrix, there are a number of components and we've touched on a couple, but I'll, I'll rattle down the list. There are six of them. They're physical, emotional, environmental, relational, existential, and mental. And we talked about, uh, so you'll notice that vocational isn't on the list in the way that we talked about, but the way that I think about this is, you know, it is sort of, I think, a calling that we have to, over the course of our lifetimes, continue to ask the question of what is important to me? What are my deepest values? What is the stuff that is really key to what I believe uh, the way that I want to live is, the way that I hope? the world is and the direction that, you know, if I have any influence at all, that we can take the world. I think that is existential. It is philosophical because, you know, when we don't have that alignment, we feel it. You know, I'll give you a common example, right? So I'm, I'm in the fitness business and think about big box gyms where the model is this. They want as many paying uh, customers, as many paying members as possible who have their memberships but are not using them. That is, that is the ideal situation, right? So the, the average big box gym, if everybody who had a membership and was paying for one suddenly showed up, there just wouldn't be any space. But I feel like that is a, a fundamental phys- philosophical tension. If we get stuck that way in the work that we do, if the best interests of the business are not aligned with the best interests of the end user, of the client or customer or member, I think we feel that. And it is hard to be wholly at peace with that. I mean, certainly done. There's no shortage of this. But and, and maybe I'm just more sensitive to it as an entrepreneur or the kind of person that I am. I really feel that way. So these are all dimensions of our life that bit by bit, as we understand ourselves better, we're trying to, I think, create that, um, create that expression of values in a, in a very real and very functional way. And here we are at the end of our first official episode of the Dad's Rank Podcast. I want to thank you so much for hanging out. If you enjoyed this, follow us on social media, follow us on the Unlearning Network, and follow us on your podcast platform of choice. We'll see you soon.